Uh, thank you very much, uh, Siobhan. That's a very kind introduction. Um, and thank you all very much for coming along uh, to this lecture. Um, I should say at the outset, it's not going to be a very formal lecture. I'm going to speak to slides, so draw your attention to uh, images and bits of poetry and talk talk my way through um, these slides. So I hope you find something of interest here. So. Um, on the 27th of May, 1817, a volume of poetry appeared uh, which took London by storm. Uh, its first edition was sold out within the day. And within that year, five new editions had to be produced. Illustrated editions appeared. The work was tr quickly translated um, and distributed across um, Britain, America, and the colonies. Uh, this book had been uh, anticipated uh, with some eagerness by the public. Uh, and indeed, the publisher, Longman, uh, play, paid um, an unprecedented sum uh, of 3,000 pounds in advance for this book. He hadn't seen a line of uh, the poem before he paid this pretty vast sum. So in today's terms, I believe that works out to about 175,000 um, pounds, a princely sum of money for any volume of poetry. Um, and so um, really, what makes this work popular, and even beyond uh, its, for its, its initial uh, year of publication, uh, the work took on a life of its own. So over there, I have on that slide given you uh, some sense of the different kinds of uh, transformations uh, that the poem achieved. It was set to music. Uh, it was produced in very handsomely, luxuriously uh, illustrated editions, often with sort of oriental themes to them. Um, and uh, it was, um, there was a ship named uh, by, from the East India Company named Lala Rook. Um, there was a, a, a royal um, uh, opera production of um, Lala Rook, uh, which had uh, the Grand Duchess of Russia play the title role of Lala Rook. And uh, noble, uh, no, nobles of, of uh, the nobility of, of, of Britain, of Russia, Prussia, all took parts in this um, t uh, tableau, uh, which was performed to an audience of 3,000 people in Berlin. Uh, so it uh, was dramatized. It was dramatized in Dublin as well. Um, and so this book, book this work uh, was transformed. And you could say it entered into popular culture. Um, and right there in the corner on your right-hand side, uh, you'll see it even enter into sort of popular culture in the form of an advertisement. I'm not quite sure uh, why um, Fairbanks, um, uh, Fairbanks decided to advertise its lard with an image from uh, Moore's Lala Rook. But there it is, uh, obviously. Uh, Fairbank, Mr. Fairbank thought that was a good idea. Um, at any rate, it was very popular in this time. Um, so why did this work become so successful? And a sort of uh, question that might follow on 
Why has it been so eclipsed? Because um, although this book was so famous and really entered into popular culture over the 19th century, it's not very well known today. And um, the answer I will suggest, and uh, um, I will suggest at the outset of the lecture, uh, might be related to its subject matter, the Orient. So um, let's start then with um, the kind of anticipation that the book uh, had in its time. And the book was uh, puffed by Lord Byron, uh, Moore's friend, and later Moore would write um, a biography of Byron. He would turn out to be an editor and biographer of Byron. Um, but Moore, Byron um, uh, anticipated Moore's work, indeed encouraged him uh, to uh, write in this style, which he had already popularized in a series of oriental tales. So Byron wrote a number of these very successful uh, uh, oriental poems, and he advised Moore uh, to uh, follow in his footsteps. So I'll give you a quote then from Byron writing um, to, uh, to Moore, and he says, stick to the east. The oracle, Madame de Stahl, who is a very um, influential um, um, figure in literary circles at this time, um, told me, told Byron, it was the only poetical policy. The north, the south, and west have all been exhausted, but from the east we have nothing but Southey's unsailables, uh, as Southey Snide swiped there uh, from, from um, Byron. He didn't like Southey at all and satirized him. Uh, in fact, Southey's uh, Curse of Gahama, which I've edited, didn't uh, uh, wasn't quite so unsaleable as Byron uh, suggests. It did go through a number of editions. Um, uh, it was popular enough, but nothing like the kind of popularity that Lala Rook would enjoy. And Byron adds, the little I have done in that way is merely a voice in the wilderness for you. And if it has had any success, that also will prove that the public are orientalizing and pave the way for you. So Byron suggests um, that the public is really receptive to this kind of poetry and that his poetry, um, and he's writing now as a successful poet. He has already uh, famously published uh, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, and he's a very well-known poet, and he suggests um, this is the way that his friend uh, Moore should follow. Um, and indeed, in, one, in, in, a, in, a, in the final um, oriental poem that uh, Byron published, The Corsair, uh, a poem that incidentally sold 10,000 copies in, on its first day, um, Byron dedicated this poem to uh, Moore, and in his dedication he says, um, I trust, so he makes this sort of public announcement um, suggesting um, that Moore might be the person, really, to uh, take up this theme. I trust truly that you are engaged in the composition of a poem whose scene will be laid in the East. None can do those scenes so much justice. So why does he think that, that uh, Moore is somehow the right person? The wrongs of your own country, the magnificent and fiery spirit of her sons, the beauty and feeling of her daughters may there be found. Your imagination will create a warmer sun and less clouded sky 
but wildness, tenderness, and origin originality are part of your national claim of oriental descent. Uh, what does Byron mean by that? I'll come back to that in a moment. So he somehow thinks um, Moore might have some kind of oriental descent. Um, and to which you've already thus far, thus far proved your title more clearly than the most zealous of your country's antiquarians. So he's suggesting something there um, that uh, for some reason Byron thinks um, this is connected with, his, with antiquarian researches at the time and he thinks Moore is really the right person to write this wonderful poem. So um, what is it um, and why is it so popular? Why do you think, uh, why does uh, Byron think um, this is going to be such a, a popular theme? And I'll start by suggesting, firstly, um, the moment, the historical moment uh, when um, uh, in, the, in the wake of Waterloo, um, Britain is on the cusp, really, um, of the Eastern Empire that it would uh, come to dominate over the 19th century. So it's at the start of its uh, imperial age. So there is uh, a map of the empire in um, 1815. And as you can see, it isn't um, quite the imperial spread that you would get by the end of the 19th century, but you, indeed um, Britain's dominion spread from uh, the western Canada to Australia with portions of India and um, Bengal and the south um, already uh, part of this uh, burgeoning empire. So in some ways this was a period of optimism for this new empire. If you like, um, Britain had lost its Western Empire, its colonies uh, in, in America, uh, but it could look forward to this new and opening empire in the East. Um, and indeed, there was a great trade which was bringing in, so even in sort of households in Britain at this time, um, there were artifacts coming in, textiles particularly, uh, rich items, luxury items that were coming in uh, from the East. And um, this was very much part of public consciousness. This, I think, is what Byron uh, suggests uh, when he talks about the public orientalizing. Uh, people are conscious of this um, and eager to acquire some of these things. So um, we'll turn then to a couple of um, uh, quotes from um, uh, the journals of the time, and they were very influential, uh, critical voices being expressed uh, in the journals. And um, this one is um, by Francis Jeffrey, uh, someone whom Moore had once challenged to a duel, but was now um, um, friends with. And uh, Jeffrey um, has a very favorable notice of Lala Rook when it comes out. He says, um, there's a great deal of our recent poetry derived from the East. I think he's referring there to Byron's work and perhaps Southey's. But this is the finest Orientalism we have had yet. So um, I'll come back to the term Orientalism in a moment. But this is what uh, he has to say and to add. The beauteous forms, the dazzling splendors, the breathing odors of the East seem at last to have found a kindred's poet in the green isle of the West whose genius has long been suspected to be derived from a warmer clime and now wantons and luxuriates in these voluptuous regions as if it had as if it felt that it had at length regained its native element 
So here you have this uh, impression of the East, uh, luxurious, dazzling, and, uh, and in some odd way connected with this kindred spirit. So there's this kind of, there's this sense that Ireland is somehow connected uh, intimately to uh, the East. There's also uh, a sense here, uh, I think you can pick up in, in uh, Jeffrey's um, uh, comments there, that there's something of um, a, a sensual aspect to this poetry. Um, this voluptuous, uses the term voluptuous, um, and indeed there was a kind, uh, rep Moore had this reputation at this time. He, uh, some of his earlier work had been criticized for being rather daring, rather um, bold in its, in its imagery, um, in its sensuality. Um, and uh, there was some sort of frisson of excitement at this somewhat sexy poetry um, that was being, um, uh, being put forward um, in, this, in this work. Um, and I'll give you another quote, less favorable here. This is a more conservative critic. And uh, this, this, this other aspect uh, you can see weighs more heavily with uh, the, critic, the critic in the British Review. He talks of um, the luxury, laziness, luxury, lust, and cruelty which have overspread the Mahometan world have been found so captivating in Lord Byron's poetry. He obviously doesn't like that. Um, so many ideas transplanted for the harems of the East have of late begun to grow and ripen in the bosoms of our youths and maidens that indigenous products of a mere English fancy have in a great measure lost their odor and their flavor. Behold him! Um, i.e. more under the spell of a transforming gene fascination which binds him in slavery to the genius of this place. And so here you have this, um, these stereotypes, if you like, of the East already um, well in evidence uh, in this critic's work. He's talking about a sort of despotic region um, and more somehow in the thrall of this despotism um, and somehow um, uh, communicating uh, some of its more dangerous aspects um, to uh, English sensibilities, which were which could be somehow um, uh, turned um, by Moore's uh, captivating poetry. So there's something very dangerous and fascinating about this. Um, on the whole, though, I should add um, the the public enjoyed this poetry, and most of the critics were uh, pretty uh, favorably uh, impressed. Uh, by Lala Rook, and even a conservative magazine like Blackwood's magazine initially welcomed Moore's poetry uh, in, in Lala Rook. So uh, it was a success, a commercial, uh, and uh, a critical success. Um, but as I said, I'll come back to this term Orientalism. Um, and what exactly did it mean at this time? Um, here are a couple of meanings I've taken from the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, to, uh, it's a new word in this, in this period, and it's com coming to acquire uh, uh, meanings for the, the late 18th century, the early 19th. Firstly, uh, it could refer to uh, a style, a quality, uh, the character, customs, etc., of Oriental nations, okay? um, an Oriental trait or feature. And secondly, um, it could refer to knowledge of the languages, cultures, etc. of the Orient. 
Okay, so um, again on that slide, I've given you some examples of that. Um, Delacroix's Death of Sardanapalus, Sad sorry, Sardanapalus, yes. Um, sorry, my um, emphasis is not falling in the right place. Sardanapalus. Uh, this, this sort of over the top uh, representation of the East, um, Sardanapalus there. Um, lying on his couch uh, overlooking a scene of sort of debauchery and destruction uh, in his chamber. On the other hand, you have a much more sober image, um, that of Sir William Jones. Uh, he was the preeminent uh, Orientalist um, of his time. He went off to India. He was a high court judge in Calcutta. Um, and he learned Sanskrit and began to translate works from Sanskrit, which were very popular in the time. So he, too, uh, uh, achieved a great sort of popular fame in the 1790s, uh, translating works uh, like the Shakuntala from Kalidasa uh, into, into English. And then it was trans translated into German and, and had another life of its own. Um, and the other image on, it, on your right there is the Asiatic uh, Researches, which was the journal of the society founded uh, by uh, William Jones in Calcutta. So this is, if you like, uh, about the Orient as uh, a field for study, uh, for knowledge acquisition, if you like, at this time. Um, so there are different senses of the word that are coming um, into currency at this time. But um, so um, more, if you like, uh, could be could be seen as an Orientalist himself. And he recounts in his, um, in a later preface he wrote to Lala Rook when he collected his poetry, um, he talks about um, this sort of phase in his life when he went about uh, studying the East like any other Orientalist, except that he didn't go out to the East. He didn't travel like Jones to India. Uh, but nevertheless, he uh, studied everything he could about the East. Uh, in the vast, um, you know, um, uh, library that was accumulating at this time of of, of materials um, from the East, um, and in that respect, he's like Sadi, uh, the poet uh, Moore and uh, Byron Mock, uh, also an Orientalist poet, also someone who would uh, not travel to the East but read everything he could. Sadi was another scholar, like uh, like Moore. And I think they were very um, very able scholars in their way, very able to quickly extract a whole lot of information about the East uh, from this material. So um, as uh, Moore later recalls, um, his uh, he 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 studied uh, the East in this way. Uh, he says he he he. Um, uh, decided to form a storehouse, as it were, of illustration purely oriental, and so familiarized myself with its various treasures that is quick as fancy in, a, in her airy spiritings. Um, so um, required the assistance of fact. The memory was ready, like another aerial, at her strong bidding to furnish materials for the spell work. Such was, for a long time, the sole object of my studies. And I took the whole range of Oriental learning as was accessible to me and, be and became, for the time indeed, far more conversant with all relating to that distant region than I've ever been with the scenery uh, productions or modes of life of any of those countries 
lying most within my reach. He says all, this almost became closer to him than, than um, countries closer home. He somehow immersed himself in the East through um, this, this body of knowledge that was uh, coming out, pouring out of the East through the Asiatic researches and other uh, works that were, that were being published in Kolkata and uh, in London um, at this time. Um, and uh, he also talks about the genesis of his poem um, of Lala Rook. So he was, he was using, he was sort of uh, developing a storehouse, as he puts it, of oriental images and so on that he could readily call upon uh, to use in his work. Um, and um, he, he was sort of casting about for the idea that would launch him into uh, the the, uh, the, the composition, as it were. And the thought occurred to me of founding a story on the fierce struggle so long maintained between the Kebirs, or the ancient fire worshippers of uh, Persia, also known as the Parsis in India, um, and their haughty Muslim masters. And so he's talking about Iran, uh, where um, the, uh, the, the fire worshippers, or the Zoroastrians, another word for them, uh, were... Uh, were ruled over and indeed migrated from Iran at this time. And from that moment, a new and deep interest in my whole task took possession of me. The cause of tolerance was again my inspiring theme, and the spirit that had spoken in the melodies of Ireland soon found itself at home in the East. So um, he says that launched him off, and he makes a parallel then between um, his cause of toleration. And this, uh, of course, would remind you of a context that was obviously uppermost uh, in many people's minds at this time. And this was 1817, and uh, Catholic emancipation uh, was in the air. So um, Moore's um, cause then is Ireland's cause, um, and he finds a kind of parallel for it uh, in, uh, in Iran. And in, indeed, the, there are sort of parallels being drawn between Iran and Erin. He literally plays with Iran and Erin uh, in, uh, in, um, um, in, the, the, in La La Rook. So um, this is what kind of launches him off uh, in, as an Orientalist. But... Um, there are uh, some there's some disquiet, if you like, in uh, in in contemporary criticism, in our in our views of the Orient. What do we think now about this sort of knowledge acquisition that was going on at this time? Uh, and recent critics, uh, I'll suggest to you, are somewhat uneasy about this whole phenomenon of Orientalism. Okay, so um, I've been told, been got strict instructions not to make this very heavy, so I'm not going to read out all those quotations. Um, but I'll mention uh, a couple of them. Firstly, Edward Said, a very influential critic, um, and he talks about Orientalism. He says it's a way, he describes it as a kind of, uh, to use his term, a corporate institution for dealing with the Orient. Um, and he links this, uh, this whole colonial project, if you like, with Orientalism. Orientalism, he says, is the kind of basis for what would unfurl as colonialism in the 19th century. In other words, this knowledge acquisition wasn't as innocent 
uh, or as benign as it made itself out to be. And he talks about Jones and others. Um, and if you want me to give you a sort of analogy, um, if you like, if you think of, um, say, a customer survey, which you know somebody comes and offers you a free, you know. Uh, box of chocolates, if you'll only tell them uh, what kind of um, sweets you like or um, what kinds of shopping you do and so on and so forth, you might think you're getting a very good deal. Here's this very nice person who's given me a box of chocolates and all I need to do is fill in a little box of, um, a little uh, tick a few boxes and so on. But of course the persons who are, people who are doing this have a kind of design on you. They want to know your shopping habits and they want to probably sell you something um, pretty soon. Okay. So for Syed, if you like, uh, the Orientalist is someone like that. Uh, he, if you like, assumes a benign uh, role, but his knowledge acquisition, and it's usually a him, uh, has a kind of design to it. But of course, um, Syed's view, Syed's um, kind of binary opposition between East and West has been criticized in many ways. And there have been many critiques uh, of Syed's work. Um, one kind of nuancing, if you like, of um, Syed's uh, thesis uh, has been achieved um, by a um, critic called Joseph Lenin. And Lenin's written a book called Irish Orientalism, uh, in which he talks about Ireland's uh, relationship somehow to the Orient. Certainly, Ireland was very interested in the Orient. A lot of people went from Ireland uh, into places like India. Uh, they were very much part of that colonial project. But perhaps, in many ways, they could relate somewhat differently uh, to the standard, if you like, um, side in view of Orientalism. Um, and um, I'll, I'll suggest to you um, a couple of, um, a couple of uh, ideas, if you like, from, from Lenin's uh, book. Um, uh, firstly, he says um, the fact that Ireland could see itself in, in some ways, could compare itself with the colonies could see itself as being oppressed in some ways by England at this time, could uh, lead, it, lead uh, the Irish to identify with uh, uh, other colonial oppressed peoples. Uh, so there's a degree of sympathy, um, perhaps, in this uh, relationship with the East. Um, okay. Um, and at another level, through antiquarian researches at this time, there was also uh, a, a, a long tradition, really, of um, suggesting that Ireland itself had its origins somehow uh, in the East, that there had been a lo uh, an earlier migration um, that had brought the Irish people to, um, to Ireland from uh, some uh, Eastern um, origin. So again, um, those myths was in circulation. They were being uh, they were being uh, talked about by antiquarians at this time. And Moore, as someone who had immersed himself in antiquarian researches relating to Ireland, would certainly be aware of these things. And I think he was tapping on these uh, tapping on these uh, these stories in circulation. And this is also why uh, reviewers. Um, and friends like Byron would see Moore as really the person to do this and really the person with the right kind of sympathy uh, 
to write a poem of this nature. Okay. So, um, just give you a very brief overview of the poem. As I said, it's not a poem that many people have read these days. Um, and in fact, you get four poems, if you like, for the price of one. Um, you get an overarching prose narrative in which Lala Rook and the titular character, she's a princess, she's the daughter of Aurangzeb, uh, one of the Mughal emperors, and uh, she is betrothed. Uh, to the king of Bukharia. Uh, she is traveling uh, from Delhi to Kashmir, uh, where she expects to meet um, her, bet her, uh, her betrothed um, and uh, to be married to him. Um, and on the way, she's entertained by a poet uh, called Poet Feromores. Um, and he gives her the four sort of inset verse tales um, that comprise this long poem. So in some ways, it's not a single text. Um, uh, it's indeed a, 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 a prose, uh, overarching prose narrative with four inset uh, verse tales. Uh, and uh, in the first of you, uh, first of them, you have this figure of the veiled prophet, uh, a Mohammedan figure, perhaps a, a look at this idea of uh, the false prophet Muhammad, um, and he's, um, he's a horrible character. He's a very sort of gothic uh, figure, very bizarre figure that uh, uh, Byron, uh, sorry, Moore invents, um, very much in, indebted to um, um, Byron's Orientalism in it. And this veiled prophet um, uh, throws himself finally into uh, um, a bath of acid uh, and is consumed. Um, the second, uh, the second of these tales is a much lighter uh, um, Oriental fancy, um, Paradise in the Peri. The Peri uh, is looking for something that will open some some charm that will open the gates of of Paradise. Um, and uh, this story goes through various. Uh, um, um, attempts by the Perry to find this charm. The fire worshippers uh, was a Byron's favorite and has often been seen as the strongest portion, so strongest part um, of um, the poem. And this, as I said, uh, is what related, this, this, this is the portion of the poem uh, where uh, uh, Moore develops the idea of the Gebirs uh, or the Zoroastrians who are oppressed um, by their Muslim masters in Iran. Um, and finally, you have the light of the Haram, which is set in Mughal Edia uh, with the Emperor Selim, uh, who has a kind of, um, a kind of um, lover's tiff, which is resolved by the end of the poem. So four verse tales uh, within this overarching uh, narrative. And I'll give you a, a brief uh, uh, flavor of the poem, a brief section, if you like, from the five worshippers. This describes uh, the figure of Al-Hassan. Uh, he's this tyrannical uh, figure, um, the Arab. Um, even he, that tyrant Arab, sleeps calm while a nation round him weeps, while curses load the air he breathes, and falchions from unnumbered sheets are starting to avenge the shame his race hath brought on Iran's name. Hard, heartless chief 
unmoved alike mid eyes that weep and swords that strike one of that saintly murderous brood to carnage and the Koran given who think through unbelievers blood lies their directest path to heaven so you can see here um, this figure of this um, despotic character the Arab um, and you get a note there um, this is again very typical of um, Moore he has a little footnote um, Iran he says he quotes the Asiatic researches um, he, uh, William Jones's fifth discourse um, from the Asiatic uh, from the Asiatic researches um, and uh, he, he produces if you like a somewhat stereotypical uh, view of this Muslim ruler a despotic Muslim ruler um, in some ways extremely stereotypical um, and you might ask even is it Islamophobic um, I think probably not uh, he adds here to do him uh, to do him credit he adds uh, in the next stanza um, he, he adds a little portion that's, that makes it clear that Allah doesn't look uh, favorably on this uh, misuse, if you like, of the Quran. So Muhammad then is a, a false prophet, um, but Allah doesn't look with favor on this um, zealotry uh, of, of, um, of, the, of the Arab. Um, but of course, these, these images could be related to um, the kind of religious bigotry um, that was that uh, Ar the Irish faced um, issues uh, relating to Catholic emancipation the penal laws that apply to uh, Catholics at this time uh, was certainly uh, could be related to the kind of uh, you have a sort of parallel text if you like uh, a parallel subtext if you like uh, that 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 um, that's uh, evident over here Okay, um, so um, I'll move on to making some um, some conclusions. These are my conclusions. Feel free, obviously, to um, disagree with them or um, question them as you as you feel appropriate. But I would read the poem as, in many ways, largely stereotypical. He plays to popular views of the East and many of his um, uh, representations of the East are very sensualized, very stereotypical. It's what would become what would be called a sort of perfumed East of the 19th century. On the other hand, he also uh, imparts a kind of Irish spin on the Orient. Uh, so you can read this text um, in um, a satirical way at times. Um, and it has what he called a doubleness of application. Um, he, 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 he suggested that his own work could be read with this, um, with this uh, subtext in mind. Um, if you think about um, the fire uh, worshippers, um, this is a section in which um, there is kind of failed rebellion. Um, you, he, you, can, you could link this, for instance, with um, Moore's own experience um, and memories of the failed 1798 rebellion um, and his memories of Emmett, um, for instance, at this time. So um, it's a kind of doomed rebellion, if you like, um, and he produces this image of a doomed, uh, uh, of, of a doomed race. 
somehow. Um, and it's very pathetic. Um, but again, the question might be asked: uh, Is this um, is this is this, is he doing uh, Ireland a service or a disservice with this kind of representation? He certainly satirizes um, the zealotry and intolerance um, uh, of of Muslim rulers, but also in the context of the ca campaign for Catholic emancipation, this has a kind of doubleness of application. Um, one of the characters um, in the prose narrative of the um, of Lala Rook is a very fastidious critic called Fadladin. And Fadladin is, is objecting all the time to the poems that Feramors is coming up with. Um, and he and if you like, um, Fadladin is the kind of um, uh, zealous and bigoted critic um, that uh, Moore is satirizing all the way through this poem. I do think that he, in many ways, emphasizes um, tolerance and uh, ethnic and religious diversities uh, in his texts, both in Irish and in the Indian context. Um, and in particular, this is a part of the research that I've done. I'm not talked very much about it. But I'm, it's very clear to me uh, that what um, Moore was learning about, uh, about India at this time from the works of people like Jones and other Orientalists um, showed to that the Muslim, many of the Muslim rulers in India were actually very tolerant. Uh, and uh, apart from the somewhat um, intolerant uh, stereotypical views of Muslim rulers that we get in Lala Rook, we also have uh, far more tolerant uh, depictions of, of Mughal rulers like Akbar, for instance, uh, who comes up in uh, Lala Rook. Um, and he talks of um, uh, Lala Rook herself is accompanied by uh, a number of people. In her retinue are many who are clearly not uh, merely um, Muslims, but also Hindus and so on. And it suggests this sort of mixed court culture that uh, uh, that Moore was quite aware of from his Orientalist researches uh, at this time. So uh, his poem actually has many touches of 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 this of this complexity. Uh, if you unpack the detail in some in some uh, you know in some detail. Um, and in the end, uh, it, it becomes a phenomenon. It takes on a life of its own. Uh, it enters into the culture of the time as it, it becomes a phenomenon, really, uh, in the 19th century. Uh, so I'll stop there. Um, there are a few suggestions, uh, including, indeed, the Erin website, which you can log on to or notice over there. And indeed, the, the final array of books over there uh, are, are far more than my uh, slides can uh, suggest um, by way of variety um, that's possible. So um, there are some suggestions, if you like, uh, to follow up. But I'm happy to take any questions.